Hello, and welcome to Pursuit of Infinity, a podcast where we explore the depths of human consciousness and delve into the fascinating world of psychedelics. In this week's episode, we welcome Barbara Wyth to the show. Barbara has been a spiritual psychic reader since 1987. She's been conducting and documenting thousands of channeling sessions around the world and claims to have the ability to speak the voices of Albert Einstein and other angelic peacemakers from beyond the grave. We unpack these statements and more, and I must say, having had not much experience with the topic of channeling, I was refreshed by her outlook on the world, humanity, and consciousness. It's my belief that no matter where the information comes from, we should value it based on its merits as it resonates and speaks to us as spiritual philosophy, instead of jumping to base its value on whether or not we consider it to be quote-unquote true. What is truth anyway if not a resonant fact that embodies the spirit of compassion and progress? The information that Barbara Channels offers both, and she gave me quite a lot to think about in this conversation. But before we get to it, as always, you can visit our website, PursuitOfInfinity.com, where you can not only listen to the pod through our integrated media player, but find all the places you can follow us as well. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider a sub, a five-star rating, or even a review, as all these things play a crucial role in extending our reach as widely as possible. If you're an avid listener and you want to show us some extra support, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash pursuit of infinity, and you'll get some great stuff in return. So head on over there and check out the details. Give us a follow on Instagram at pursuit of infinity pod to keep up with news, episode drops, memes, and more. Also, you'll find links to our discord server and YouTube channel, which is at youtube.com slash at pursuit of infinity. All of our episodes are always posted there in video format, as well as an array of shorts that we have been putting together on a regular basis. Now, with all of that out of the way, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's discussion. Hey everyone, welcome to Pursuit of Infinity. I'm your host, Josh. If you're listening to the audio version, you will have heard a short introduction to today's guest. Uh, But if you haven't and you're watching, I'm here with Barbara With Barbara, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So Barbara, you're a channeler. And for me, I haven't really been steeped too deeply into the world of channeling. I'll just share two examples of how I've been exposed to it. Uh, one good and one a little negative. So the first one, um, I am a proponent of the spiritual teacher Ram Das, who I'm sure you've heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used to always talk about this disembodied being that was a friend of his named Emmanuel. And Emmanuel was channeled through a woman named Pat. And I've always loved listening to him talk about what Emmanuel says, because it's just some of the greatest things uh, some of the greatest nuggets of information, like one of them was uh, concerning death. Death is like taking off a tight shoe, which I thought was really cool, um, and it's perfectly safe. Um, so in terms of channeling itself, in that circumstance, I find it very interesting, and I feel like I really want to learn more about it. So the second instance was I have um, my my aunt and my cousins, they had an appointment with a channeler. He's a pretty famous guy. Uh, they had to book months out. Uh, and the experience that they had 
wasn't really convincing to me. Uh, and it sort of triggered something in me, like this notion that some people will use the death of a loved one against you sort of to, um, to further their own money-making scheme or whatever it may be. So I guess what I'd like to start with is how do you square the people who are more charlatans and the people who are actually legitimately channeling? Well, maybe I can just start with my experience of my channeling, and then I can get to that question. Perfect. Because I, I feel like I began channeling about when I was 13, when I started to write music. I started to write music at a very young age, and the way that I described it was, as a 13-year-old, I go out into outer space, and I listen for the song. So I'll listen and I'll hear like four bars of a song that I then come back, lyrics, melody, chord structure, and I would play those four bars until suddenly out would come four more bars. So it was like someone was squeezing the music out of a toothpaste tube and I was listening to it and then interpreting it and coming back. So to me, that's the basic premise of channeling, whether you're listening for Emmanuel whether I'm listening for Einstein, whether you're listening to that dead person's or that loved one's person who has passed away, that's kind of the general process of it. So when I started to automatic write, I knew what it was. I was still surprised that my hands sort of got taken over by this force that was typing things to me that I had not intended to type. And what they were doing was they were taking these incidences and these situations in my life that were really painful and shameful, things I thought were failures, and they were reframing them to be meaningful and kind of magical and self-loving. And that initial shift in my perspective of thinking, wow, I'm not ruined. I actually was doing this good work. I just didn't know it. it was like one of my first forays into self-generated self-love. And that is where all of my work has come from. Now, I, I have learned that I can talk to people who were passed on, whether they be my girlfriend's mother or my own father or Albert Einstein. And my personal belief is that, A, if somebody comes to me totally distraught saying, I need to talk. My, my mother just died. I need to talk to her. I generally won't take them up because of just what you said is that when you're in that condition of such deep grief and you're missing someone and you want to communicate with them to know that they're still there and to get some comfort, you're actually in those initial stages of grief doing yourself a disservice, I believe. Because there's a certain amount of grief that no talking to a dead person is going to relieve you of, nor should it. Because grieving is a beautiful, natural process that everybody goes through in life that we have to let go. So when I see people, particularly um, well-known people, uh, who that's what they do. They stand there and they look at people and they tell them who they're... To me, that's kind of parlor tricks. 
Like, I don't doubt that that person has that ability, but why are you using it? What is the purpose of it? And surely there are people who get some relief from that. Um, but for me, I just wanted to use my gift in a different way. And I think everybody has to discern for themselves. Is this legitimate? Is this not? And that comes from within us. If I go to a channel and they're telling me stuff that my intuition is saying, what? Well, maybe it's not a good fit. Maybe they're not a good channel. Maybe I'm hard to read, but it's not, it's not happening. So everybody needs to make their own determinations for that. Definitely. Now, you mentioned that your channeling sort of originated or came to you through performing art. Is that a common way in which channeling sort of comes to someone? I don't know about other psychics, but I know that this process that I described was something um, I heard Brian Green. Brian Green is a very familiar physicist. He does string theory. And I heard him once describe how he does math. And it was exactly the same. He goes in, he listens, he, you know, he maybe sees or and brings it back and transcribes it. But and I think people who do think about improv, like saxophone improvisation, that's all channeling. You're listening just ahead of what your fingers are doing. If you're listening, um, sort of, I, I think when I improv, it's it's unconscious or subconscious, whatever. I'm not sitting there thinking. But it, it's the same. It is very much the same process that all artists use to create. Yeah, I've heard there's a guy named, I think his name is Stephen Pressfield, and he wrote a book called The War of Art. And he talks about this, this thing called resistance, and he talks about the muse. And the muse is like this, this disembodied intelligence that he can tap into that allows him to break through his resistance and continue to create art and have ideas. So that really reminds me of that. Yeah, and I use that very same muse when when I when I write music is that there is so much going on in my intellect. So even at this late stage of having written thousands of songs and performed all over, there's still this voice in my intellect is like you that's just nobody's going to like that. You know, there's all this clatter clatter. So when we reach into a deeper place, listen for a bigger and then trust ourselves. That's when, yeah, when good art works. Yeah. So where do you think the source of these entities are? Is there like a soul realm? Is there a place that we kind of go when we die, that we bring our personality with us? Where, where do you think these entities are that you're channeling? Well, interestingly enough, uh, as I got into actually channeling, moving from music to actually speaking, I had a mentor when I was 17, 18, for about 10 years, who was a channel. And so I knew what it was. So when I started doing it and I, I experimented with my first speaking, it started out as writing, um, that has led me on a very long journey we can talk about to realizing that I was speaking with Einstein. And in 2005, I did a very specific project to celebrate Einstein's 100-year anniversary of his miracle year, which was 1905, 
including E equals MC squared. So I channeled several um, sessions and I took all that raw material and spent the winter editing with him at my side. I would hear him say things like, okay, Google black holes. Now take these three terms, source, lens, and observer, and put them over here on our map. So this was the beginning of him bringing through what I believe is his unified field theory from afterlife, something he never did in real life. And in it, he explains all of what you're asking. He creates this unified field theory uh, with a map that include maps of human consciousness for how humans interact with the earth plane. And in this revolutionary worldview, he says the source of everything, which is a mystery, is actually, if you're going to locate it on a map, it's going to be in the center of the planet. That in the center of the planet, things are so hot and they're moving so quick, you know, the edge of the earth is moving like this while the inner part of the earth is moving, that it creates the same kind of condition as a black hole. So it's a mystery. You'll never be able to know where the source is or what the source is. But with this presupposed uh, idea that everything that we experience in the universe originates in that source. So I and you, you have your own, what he calls a compilation of consciousness. And in that compilation is all the mathematics that is eventually going to be you sitting there in that chair, latitude, longitude, age, time, everything very complicated. And then from that compilation that, that's located actually in the center of the planet, out comes this gravitational wave and it flows up through the planet and when it gets to the surface of the planet and sort of bursts forth, this is where your lens is created, your physical body is created. And all of that information, all of that, those mathematics are projected and perceived by your physical body. And this is where I, I was very curious in your show about simulations is that this is the model for what that simulation is. It's not artificially created. It's created as a part of this bigger operating system. So then that wave, you, we have this physical experience and every decision that we make, because we have this free will to make decisions, gets programmed into that gravitational wave as, as part of our math. And it flows out of the lens back into the heavens and where the Earth's electromagnetic field is flowing, covering the earth, it, it goes back, it joins with that earth's electromagnetic field and it heads back down into the center of the planet. So this is the spinning string that Brian Greene has been referring to. The compilations of consciousness are the M theory that Edward Witten invented saying that everything is made up of these um, uh, spheres. And at the root of all this, and this truly, Josh, was one of the most mind-blowing things I had ever heard. He defines compassion with a capital C as the fifth fundamental force of the universe. That is the intelligence that uses the four fundamental forces to impel the creation of matter 
one step at a time in this operating system. And compassion is, it's not what we traditionally, how we traditionally define it. It's very, he has very clear definitions that never change. So compassion is the fifth fundamental force has an influence on those four fundamental forces. So one thing it does is it impels out of this nothingness, it impels the creation of this compilation of consciousness that is you or me, my own. And so that's like a compass that draws circles. So the second thing it does is like a compass that points to true north is that it aligns every single compilation to true north. So we're all on the same map. We're all on the same planet. We all have the same uh, points of reference. And then the third thing that compassion does, it infuses our mathematics with the truth that we are really one big being and that we are interdependent upon each other and work together. So that was his definition of compassion, which really just changed the way that I saw everything. Yeah, this I really love because compassion is one of my favorite things to explore. And many, many spiritual traditions harp on compassion, compassion. It's all about compassion. And I think you're right. The definition of compassion that most of us think of is more like empathy and I think empathy is very different from compassion because compassion is like universal. Were these spiritual traditions aligning themselves with the same ideas that you're receiving in terms of compassion? Is that what relates them? I think that they do. In fact, um, when I create the whole map where we see not just the lens of where our physical world is and where we exercise empathy and, and love and all those sort of lowercase compassions. When you see the whole operating system and how it all works and that this compassion as the fifth fundamental force of the universe is this intelligence that's impelling the whole thing to come into creation, at its root is the truth that we are all one being. So that's infused within us. And I think that's what comes in all religious traditions or spiritual traditions that we have this. Einstein, my Einstein has gone on to prove that not only do we have the capacity to be compassionate, but at our root, we are made up of this energy of compassion that aligns us to the earth, which would then you know, subset down into environmentalism or love of nature or any of that. Um, it aligns us to um, to uh, this kind of circular, spherical world that we live in, and it aligns us to each other. Now, let me just say that what happens is he he defined these three human dimensions. Okay, these are three dimensions. He says only we have animals. They have instinct. They probably have some emotion, but humans are the only ones that have these three human dimensions and they work sequentially according to Einstein. So the first human dimension, the one that comes when, when there's this sort of big bang that happens in your compilation that sends this gravitational wave out. The first 
stage is called emotion with a capital E. And this is the root of our feelings, yes, but in a much broader sense, the, this is sort of the primordial soup where everything that's going to sort out to be separate begins to be seen. So all of my compilations of, con all of the reflections of my compilation of consciousness, the chair, the table, you, everything is all sort of mixed up, but they're starting to, to separate from the oneness. So as this wave moves and the second dimension is revealed, this is intuition. And intuition is the voice of compassion that's, it works through the emotion and it is the thing that is impelling us to not only, if you're talking about like personal intuition, to take the next most advantageous step that's going to be good for the whole situation, because compassion knows that. But it's also, it's intuition is what makes our heart beat. It impels heartbeat, heartbeat. There's a whole subatomic level of this that goes on. And then as that flows up into the third and the most dangerous dimension of all is intellect with a capital I. And this is not only where we hear that conscious range of thinking where we're thinking about stuff. In the subatomic level of intellect is all of the descriptions. So as you're sitting there, you're not hearing it in your human range, but there's some sort of intellectual message saying that is a computer, that is a computer, that is a computer, that is a computer, that is a fan, that is a chair. It's defining the world that started out in this primordial soup as everything's pulled together to create form. And then as it comes into the body, everything is miraculously separated, projected, perceived back by the physical body. So when we say we're going to align to compassion, it isn't just to be kind or to be loving. It's that there's a very specific way that we can control this flow that's within us so that our emotions are flowing, that our intuition is clearly being perceived in our human range of thinking, and that our intellect, which houses the free will, is going to do what that intuition tells us. And that piece between intuition telling you, for example, rest. Intellect can argue. I can't rest. I've got too much work to do. And then makes decisions to go off and work, work, work. And that conflict, Einstein says, between the intuition telling us what's best for the whole and our intellect denying it is the root cause of every conflict in the world. Do you feel like this begins when we start to form language as a child because it seems to me that we're closer to this primordial unity or this unitive field when we're babies it's almost like we're born into duality when the formless takes on the form of a human so is that where this all begins is that where this disconnect is and the duality starts where the intellect starts to uh, acquire the ability to take us farther out of that oneness? I, I do believe that's true. And I think as little tiny babies, the intellect itself is clear and wide open and our perception is taking in this new 
world while our intuition is telling us cry you know you're hungry cry sleep there's just very simple but what happens is this intellect gets programmed with what we call the voices of culture so if you grow up in an english speaking culture you're going to get programmed with it, with that language if you grow up in a family where your parents are demonstrating to you that there is no love and here's the messages you're no good that all gets programmed in there and so now we have years of um of as we by the time we get to adults we have years of programming that's really deeply embedded into us that we don't even know is there and it's so difficult to break through that programming especially when you still have to be in the world um, another Ramdas quote, uh, he says he tries to be in the world, but not of the world. So you don't allow the world to dictate your feelings. You don't allow the world to dictate or pull your consciousness, but you still understand that you have to chop wood and carry water. Yes. And I believe that is why Einstein, who else but Einstein would die with these passionate urges to get a unified field and find peace, go into afterlife, figure out how it all works, organize a way to get it back, and then proceed to tell us what we can do to be in the world, but not of it. And that was the years of research we did with his work that created conflict revolution. And it's such a brilliant process that allows us to work the process while we're still chopping wood based on what we're being triggered by in the environment. Those are the clues as to what in this part, the non-physical three dimensions of our human existence are in conflict and how to resolve them in here first. So how were you able to identify initially that you were channeling Albert Einstein, or how are you able to identify who it is that you're channeling? Is there, is there an identity that transcends our physical body that stays with our maybe quote unquote soul or spirit? Well, there is. And that is when we lose our physical body, that spinning string that contains all of that information continues forever. It's just part of the, of the earth. It's part of existence. And on that string is, I, I, I think of it like a hologram, like a hologram of who we had been that, that kind of pulls together all of that. So if you, if you see, uh, I don't, some people can see people who have passed on looking like they did. That's how that takes place. Interesting. So do you get to ask questions or are you sort of a bard for whatever this spirit entity wants to tell you? Well, let me just back up by saying when I started to channel and when I went to a channel when I was in high school, there was never anybody else. She was just an antenna. And she picked up my what she called my higher power, which is the bigger part of me that has most of the answers. And she was able to talk back to my human brain that was full of questions and doubts and so kind of connect the two up. So for me, that's when I started to channel, that's what I told people. 
However, in about 1993, all those years ago, I wanted to do a group. I was really fascinated with um, Edgar Cayce. And I had been reading a lot of Jane Roberts. She channeled an entity called Seth. And his information was much more scientific to me than it was spiritual about how to live. It was really about the nature of reality. So I wanted to do this group, and I couldn't really find anybody in my clientele who was interested in it. And suddenly, um, Teresa McMillan showed up for a reading. She was just a referral. She sent a bunch of women and then sent her best friend, Kimberly Phelps. And they all had readings and were just, I'd never seen anybody so fascinated with the information. None of my clients would call me up and say, what does this mean? So they started sort of following me around. I was playing at a hotel in Minneapolis and they were coming to my gigs and we were talking. And at the same time, both they and I in different spots had the idea. I said, oh, here's my group. And they said, we have a group. Will she come? So when they asked, who are you? I was very uncomfortable. There wasn't anybody. There isn't anybody. It's, we're just this energy. We're just energy. But then the voices said, well, you can call us angels, angels. And that made me even more uncomfortable because what this is, what you're telling us is not typical angel material of love and light. And this was about conflicts and how they originate and how they want to teach us this process, this revolutionary process for resolving conflicts. They called it world peace, one person at a time, starting with you. So I kind of went, went, went along with it because the information was truly divine. And we were all three of us, our lives were rapidly changing as we put these worldviews to the test, to our own lives. We started changing dramatically. So that whole time period, we kept our diaries and all the transcripts from all of the channeling. And we published our first book called Diaries of a Psychic Sorority. And when I published that, I got myself a literary agent and she was shopping the rights. And one day she called me up and said, I've got this tabloid in London who's looking for an interview with Princess Diana from beyond the grave on the one year anniversary. And I was really flummoxed and I was kind of off put a bit because this is this is parlor trips tricks to me. We're just going to whatever and I thought a lot, and I thought, okay, I'll do it. And I sat down, and I channeled the questions, I channeled the answers, and I printed it off. And when I read it, I, I wept. It was very intense detail about her relationship with Dodie, what happened that night, her children. But the biggest message that she was bringing was to make peace. If 40,000 people, 40, 40 million people who love Diana would listen to her, her plea and make peace, so the tabloid didn't want it, needless to say. My agent and I sat down and mapped out other possibly famous dead people who might be wanting to talk. And by the time we got to John F. Kennedy, which was a really interesting interview, he told us, we'll tell you who's next. So you don't have to think about it. We're, we're writing this book. We've been writing this. So by the time Albert Einstein got up in the queue, that voice was so familiar. It was the sound that when I first started automatic writing and I said, who are you? And they said, well, we're sound, sound. 
And as a you know, 13-year-old who listens for music, that was fine with me. But I knew that voice. And I knew that he was also in my channeling. He had been speaking through me just by my association of that vibrational voice. So I'm not somebody who can say I can talk to any dead person. There's a cooperation between my work and the afterlife. Um, I don't go out to just talk to your dead grandma unless it's there's some really important reason to do that. But um, and and how I discern who it is, the, I have to say that a lot of times when I channel, you can hear the changing voices. I don't always know who it's changing from or to, or if it's actually Albert Einstein right now, and now it's Carl Jung, because he dropped in. And he dropped in one at one session just to really clarify some of his theories that he brought forth in life. So it's really mysterious. And I often I always urge people to trust themselves about it. Don't, you know, don't I'm not here to prove to you this is Albert Einstein. I'm saying, what if? Let's do a thought experiment. What if it is? What is he saying? Is it worthy of Einstein? Is it as brilliant as he was? And it, it certainly is uh, to me. So I'm with you there because again, with the Ram Dass thing, you know, he would always say, I'm not prejudiced. I'll take the information from wherever, wherever it comes. I'm not going to judge whether or not it's real because that's not the point. The point is to take the information and to integrate it into your own being. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what Carl Jung said, if you wouldn't mind sharing, because I'm a big fan of Carl Jung and his work. Well, what's interesting is in Party of 12, the afterlife interviews, that was the book I published after my agent and I did all these interviews with these 12 famous dead people. And one of them was Sigmund Freud. Right. So I didn't know anything about Sigmund Freud a little bit, but really nothing about his relationship to Einstein. And in retrospect, looking at how conflict revolution is constructed, and, and it's all about us going into the shadow side, if you call it that, because that's young, right? That's, that's kind of what he was coming through to really reiterate. Because what we do in conflict revolution is that basically, um, when we deal with the intellect as one dimension, the intellect is going to look outside ourselves. At, I'm going to look at you and say, well, you're not respecting me. You're treating me poorly. And in normal conflict resolution, now we got to negotiate and you have to change your behavior. But in conflict revolution, we keep that, we look, I'll look at you and say, you know, you're treating me really poor. Here's the things you're doing. You're disrespecting my time. You don't have any consideration for my physical appearance, uh, condition, whatever. And we keep that revolving back to us so that now we're using that as an archetype. We're not stopping at you. We're using it the archetype to find our own shadow places and our own subatomic programming in our intellect that has us making decisions that aren't respecting ourselves or aren't respecting other people or uh, not having any uh, respect for our physical bodies. And so Jung came in to really reiterate that this, as hard as it is, 
it's very hard on the ego. Most humans want to keep looking at you saying, you're the one that did it. And Jung was saying, to get into those shadow sides is really our liberation. It's really our integration and, and, and our healing. Because all of that emotion that we never let flow through that wave and flow through our body and release gets trapped and abscessed and creates those shadow sides and influences our thinking and our decision-making without even knowing. And many spiritual traditions say the same thing. You know, whether it's Buddhism with attachment, it all begins with you. So I really resonate there. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really surprised when Jung came through that he had not been a part of the original party. Because what between Freud and Jung in real life, they had a really complete and almost parallel view of the psyche. Yeah, they did. It seemed that Jung expanded upon Freud's idea of the psyche in a way that Freud wasn't willing to do. He wasn't willing to go down the path of mysticism, of symbol, synchronicity, all of these revolutionary ideas that Jung brought forward feel like Freud just wasn't open to them. And that's probably why he was in the party, because a lot of the people who spoke in the party came to, to correct their mistakes. To, like, if I could tell you now from afterlife what I didn't know then, let me tell you that. So that would make sense. But also, Jung actually um, attended to Albert Einstein's son. He was the, I don't know if he was a psychologist or a psychiatrist or what, what you called him at that time, but he took care of his son. Interesting, interesting. So you think that's sort of why he came into there? Because there was a relation there? Uh, there was some sort of an understanding yeah, and I think that in, in talking about the party, it started out as the party of 12, because there were these 12 people who emerged to set, who said, we have a message we want to give you and then put it in a book. But as time has passed, the party has come to represent when people pass on, those people who would want to gravitate towards Albert Einstein, I certainly would be one of them. Uh, it's kind of end up there. And so we get a lot of different um, entities and souls who are also working in the afterlife for to help us find a way to find world peace. Very interesting. I have a, a sort of more random question that just kind of came to me earlier. Um, is it possible to channel your former self? Because I know like there's this this continuous thing that is in us, whether it's our spirit, our soul, that idea of I am, the feeling of the only thing that you can say is consistent between each transformation of yourself. Can that be contacted in a way through a channel type of situation? So if you're referring to a former part of this life, Actually, that's a really good point. Yeah, I was sort of referring to a former part of this life, as in, uh, like some people have repressed memories and things like that that they can't really bring to the surface. Um, so let's first approach um, this life. Are you able to 
revisit prior versions of your spirit that you had forgotten within the the senses and the memories and the biological triggers that allow us to survive? Yes, absolutely. And when I do a reading for someone, they will often be able to go back to some former part of your life where decisions were being made that were not in your best interest or what have you, that emotions have gotten trapped there for your whole life and you've been carrying them around. And what that thinking process was um, during that time and then how, how to see how it's still influencing you now and how to correct that. And with conflict revolution, in that particular sense, what we would do is we'd, we'd be training you to realize, first of all, that you have these trapped emotions from when you were, say, five years old and you were abused or what have you. And first of all, we have to release them. So the idea that, and this is another revolutionary piece of this work that blows me away, is that people often think that, you know, if I feel this bad feeling from when I was five and abused, um, that's not a good thing because I'm supposed to be, you know, staying in this high vibration of love and joy and what have you. But what really happens is that emotion comes up on your flowing string and it triggers those thought processes that were going on back then. And they kind of marry to each other. And then it creates that present moment decision-making process that's being influenced by those subatomic suppressed, repressed thoughts and emotions. So the answer is we create a system where we see emotion and intellect as absolutely completely different energy fields. Now, to have a human experience, the all the emotion with capital E of the chair and the table in the primordial soup have to come up and marry to thoughts that say that is a chair, that is a chair, so that we have the experience. However, when we have these repressed emotion, if we can channel them without letting them marry or attach to any thought, just as an energy that keeps it flowing, we start to empty out that abscess. And usually what I advise people in my work is that I myself had a particular mantra that I used when I was really welling up with anger because I was a, I was a rageaholic. I don't need to know why I feel this. I need to just feel and breathe it through and it's breath work. It's breathing it because when we get into the intellect, that's when we start to analyze, you know, well, why am I mad? Well, I'm mad because he said this. And that. That's not feeling. That's thinking. It's charged with emotion but it's a thinking thought intellectual process. So we break the two apart. And the truth is getting into the next part of, can we, can we channel past lives or, you know, other lives um, in our mechanism in our operating system, all of the motion that we hold in our body and move through our body is so mysterious. Yeah. Some of it comes from childhood. Some of it is, present moment, you know, you're reacting to a traffic accident or some of it's past lives. Some of it is just that we are part of the earth. And what are we picking up from the planet? What emotions are coming from the planet? So we don't need to know why or where or how that emotion came. We want to move it. And as we breathe it and move it, it's the way that we can have, say, anger and all those alleged 
you know, lower vibrational energies we're supposed to stay away from moving through us and we're loving it. We're accepting it. We're detaching from living in the world, right? If we attach it to the story, now we're in the world and of it. But if we're just feeling it and moving it, and that leaves a different skill of what you're going to do with all these thoughts. So they're like two different organs. You know, you treat the heart one way, you treat the stomach another way. And they, they're treated much differently. Interesting. So I understand you can probably do this for a client, but is there a way to do it for yourself? Like, can you meet a younger version of yourself or even a past life of yourself through this work? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I went through a period in my life for about four or five years where I struggled very much with, I came from a very abusive household and I made great strides through my life, but there came a point in my life where it all just came up, just all came up. And what I found is that it, when I let myself feel uh, the feelings fully, there were some that were past life feelings. Like I kept saying, the thing I kept saying was, I feel like I'm being slit from here all the way down. And through this painstaking, and this took me a couple of years to painstakingly put this story together, had to do with the life I lived in Ireland in about 900 AD. And, you know, there was all these details about it that came clear. And there were actually other people I was channeling for people, strangers, and they were like part of this life, which was very interesting. But also, when we let ourselves feel, we can go back to that nine-year-old. For example, when my mother died, it was very traumatic for me. This is 2018. And I ended up ab-reacting sort of to back to nine years old when my parents were beating on each other and there was all this abuse. And, and so I was able to, in that adult state, also feel this nine-year-old and actually it was so, it was so profound because who really remembers how you feel when you're nine? I mean, you can think about it. You can think about what it was like, but you don't really have, like you were talking when a when a baby is born, there's this clarity, you know, we don't remember that. So to be in this state of having worked this process all these years, and then coming to this point where my mother passes and this, this nine-year-old sort of ab reacts and come up. And then it's like, it's almost like it's a little bit schizophrenic because now I have two entities. One is me here and one is my nine-year-old. And now I have a chance to love my nine-year-old like she, she hadn't been loved at nine. And I can make these conscious choices to not, you know, judge her, or push her away, or I don't want to feel these feelings or what was wrong with me and really embrace and heal and integrate her. So that's been a lot of my work, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and we sort of have been dancing around a lot of these like validating experiences that you've had. Uh, do you have any other stories that can sort of validate um, or be helpful to understanding um, the validity of channel? Validating it. Like you for know, people who may not believe it or people who might say like, well, you know, 
Um, it seems cool. It sounds interesting. And it sounds like there's a relation there. But do you have any like, maybe not definitive stories, but some interesting stories to tell that maybe quote unquote might validate what channeling might be? Well, I do. I, I think for any of the Einstein, you know, party of 12, I think reading what they said would be your own determination. And I always leave that to people. It's like, if you don't think it's Einstein, fine. Just think I made the whole thing up because it's still really brilliant. And I don't personally feel that brilliant that I could have orchestrated this whole, you know, 15 year coincidental history of what happened. But what I found was interesting is that this channeling has also allowed me to, for example, there was a woman who came to me who had an adult autistic son who never spoke a word in his life. And she said, Barbara, do you think you could channel him for me? And I'd never done such a thing. It's like, what? Okay, let's try. And it took two or three sessions of me sitting between them and her asking me questions and me listening and then answering for her. And he would make these little grunt, grunt, Sufi sounds like he did. And after two or three times, she said, you know what? I don't need you anymore. I've heard my son from before he was born. And now you've just validated it for me. And because of that work we did, she was able to move him to a better facility, to a better place. And there was also, when I was first learning that I could speak to those who had passed on, what would happen is somebody would say the name of their relative and there'd be this little sort of swooshy sound I would feel. And there'd be this image I'd see. And I could say, well, was your father very tall? Did he have gray hair? Did he smoke? And they go, yeah, 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 yeah. So my friend called me up and said, talking about her mother and here's this thing and here's her mother. And she looks like she's Joan of Arc. And I said, you know, was your mother really, I see her looking like Joan of Arc. Yes, my mother always had causes and blah, blah, blah. And I said, when did she pass? She's not passed. She's in an Alzheimer's state where she doesn't speak anymore. Will you come and talk to her? So I did the same thing where I went into the room and we asked questions and talked. And it turned out that she could not bring her electric blanket with her. I said something to Mary about, she says she misses her blue blanket. Oh my God, that was her electric blanket. And so we pieced together these pieces. It wasn't a big long channel. She missed her hot tub. She missed her blanket. She wasn't being treated right. And that led to a huge change for that. They took her out of that and they got her more into baths and gave her everything she needed. So those are the kinds of things that somebody can look at it from the outside and question it. And that's good. I think skepticism is good. But when you have that kind of experience, it's very hard to not believe. Yeah. And I mean, oftentimes it's about the information that you're getting from the experience, whether it be from, I mean, any spiritual experience, meditation, psychedelics, that's where I generally get my information from. <laughs> but it's about going somewhere to some other realm with your consciousness and obtaining information that you didn't previously have. To me, that is validating enough. And I think, I believe channeling is what we all do to have life. We're channeling this energy. So uh, I love that idea of 
psychedelics, they break down this kind of part of it, intellectual de descriptions and they, they allow for the reorganization of that in such a powerful way so that we can have other experiences. But I, I think that there are so many people who call themselves psychics, whether they're channeling or they're doing cards and they have a very limited view and they're, and they're doing maybe, you know, is your boyfriend going to come back or, you know, is this going to happen and predicting the future? And, and I don't besmirch them, but that's not what I do. And a lot of my work, because of this, because it is so big, it's such a big claim that I'm making, is that I offer so much of it at no cost. So you can get into it. You can see it. You can be, you know, if you want to buy some time with me personally to have a reading, I'll charge you some money, but all that information for the world is out there for free because I think it's way more important for us to change the world right now than it is for me to make another $150. Not to mention the books. You can find, yes. them, find this information in your books. And also there's a guy named Paul Selig who does the same thing. I've seen, um, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard of him, right? Yep. Yep. What, what are your feelings about him? I like Paul. I think he, I think he does a good job. I do too. It's interesting the way he does it too. Like when he actually physically channels live for people. Um, it's very interesting how like he says, like it's almost like the words come through him and then he says them again. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. So when I, when I, and when I channel, um, there's always room for questions and conversation, they say, but they make it very clear that their job is not to tell you what's going to happen next week for you. I can, I've done that. I've been predictive in some pretty profound ways, but the party and Einstein and everyone I channel, you know, they're here to, to promote world peace. And I think everyone sh eventually, I hope that channeling is obsolete because people can have that connection so thoroughly within themselves. Yeah, I'm with that for sure. World peace, that's uh that's definitely something that I can get behind. And a lot of the spiritual traditions, the psychedelics, it seems they all weave that same message, that same theme of world peace, of compassion, especially. That's how you get to world peace. That's how you get to to everything. That's how you connect yourself with that capital L love, I believe, is through compassion. Yes. And in this work that we're doing. On July 9th, last July 9th, I opened up an invitation. I called it the Invitation for the Participation of the Willing. And I realize it's a big, it's a big ask, but the idea is, and it's always been this idea with Einstein, is that on a local level, on the microcosm of just me, when I align to compassion, when I let my feelings flow, when I listen to my intuition and act on it, I change what manifests around me. Now, on some levels, that's really uh, just a no-brainer that if, if I call up a customer service rep and go, what the hell are you doing? You know, I'm going to get one kind of response. And if I'm really nice and kind, I'm going to get another kind of response. But what Einstein proved in his unified field theory in Imagining Einstein, my book, Imagining Einstein, which first explained it, was why when we resolve these conflicts within ourselves, 
we impact what literally physically manifests around us. And I think there's a long way to take this that I hope to get to, but basically the idea of creating world peace one person at a time means that if you do this and you find this peace and you stop this us versus them, this blame, that we're going to have an impact on what's happening on the other side of the world. We're going to have an impact on how things fall out. We might not, war might not just end completely in one day. But the more that people do this deep shadow work, owning, understanding that we are all one and actually make it practical and not just intellectual, we have a profound ability to impact how matter manifests. And his, his theories in my, my second Einstein book, which is called Einstein et al., Einstein and everyone else, uh, Manifestation, Conflict, Revolution, and the New Operating System, he goes into extreme depth about not just about making your world a nicer, better place, but the actual scientific proof that he has that when you do this and then you apply intention, you will be able to physically manifest uh, the physicality around us. Amazing. Amazing. So as you continue to do the work, the shadow work, and as you continue to travel down this path, does your ability to channel get stronger? Yes. <laughs> I have to say in the past several years, it's, it's become just more brilliant and mind blowing to me after all of these years, I've been traveling, channeling since 1987. And the more that I resolve my conflicts and I get clear and I operate daily from not being attached to those triggers and clear this space on a regular basis. And also I've taken a, to, I guess you'd call it prayer. I'm not praying to somebody outside myself so much as I'm getting my inner space open. Like, I don't know if Ram Das called it this, but when we create an empty rice bowl in our intellects so that we're discovering and receiving rather than defining and all of this, then you open up for all kinds of things. And I always have always said a prayer of protection where I only evoke the most divine light uh, and the greatest good. So I, I, I haven't had a lot of experience with like bad entities or whatever. <laughs> so yes, it is, it, it much is much more profound these days. Have you ever had any type of hangups or negative experiences while channeling? When I first started to channel, I feel like I was put through sort of a test, like I was being tested. And in the beginning, there was a couple of times where I had an agenda, where there was a, a man with disabilities who needed help, and I would go to my friends and channel that they were going to help him. And that quickly spiraled out of control in my own ego, and my own mind, where I realized wow, how do, I, how do I change this? And so I had to be extra diligent about emptying myself out in prayers and asking for that humility and 
really making sure that I got out of the way. But I've never really had like a evil spirit or I have to say in Party of 12, we talked to, to Adolf Hitler. And that's where we found out that hell isn't a place you go. It's a condition that you in afterlife that you are in. If in life, you were programming this wave that is you with all of these dastardly deeds, they come back around and they become part of who you are. And now you have to, in afterlife, deal with them. Interesting you bring that up because it makes me think of this question that my brother and I actually contemplated. Um, is there a universal morality? Because you say a guy like, like Hitler, you know, a lot of times we bring him up as the most extreme example of trying to get someone to come to terms with the fact that every act, even if we deem it evil or imperfect, is actually done with a foundational base of love with a capital L. Um, but that brings to question then, is there a such thing as a universal morality? Is there something that we can all say is good and something we can all say is bad? So have you ever gotten information about that? I would say that the example that I have is that in Party of Twelve, we also interviewed Jesus, son of man, son of God, but son of man. And, and the end result was their message was that all human beings have been given the capacity to either be Hitler or Jesus. And we all kind of fall somewhere, you know, hopefully, the people I know, you know, I'm not Jesus, I'm not Hitler, but I strive to be that good person. And we're given that. So you and I have the potential and the ability to fall out of morality. But in the bigger operating system, with compassion as the capital C, what we don't see is, so here's Hitler, right? Here's this gravitational wave that's running up, and here's Hitler having his experience. But what we don't know is, what were Hitler's other lives? What was his commitment before he came into this life to play this bad guy right, to be, play the part of this bad guy in order to balance off whatever. We just don't know any of that. And just briefly, in this, in this map where we have the earth and we have the center of the earth, and here's your compilation and the, spin it, string, the string to the lens. But I have another life, okay? It's in Ireland in 900, so that math changes. I'm still in my compilation of consciousness, but the math has changed. Now I'm a king in 900, it's this. So that wave goes out and the lens that's created on the surface of the planet is now 900 AD, you've got all that programming in. And that wave also comes back around and, and it joins back up. And what happens is it bleeds through now to this life. They're not just separate, but so I'm fielding the thoughts, feelings, and perceptions of that life in this life, which can be crazy making if you don't know what's going on. If you're, you know, there's a lot of people in psychiatric hospitals who very well could be fielding a whole other life of theirs. And the good news is 
that it's all the same remedy. Like, it doesn't matter if that, that emotion is from my 900 life or if it's from my nine-year-old life. I'm going to deal with it the same. I'm going to get it moving and I'm going to take control of intellect and all of that. So I think the overarching morality is that compassion with a capital C as the fifth fundamental force of the universe. We are all made up of that. And the beautiful part about the system is that whatever condition that the gravitational wave is in perfectly projects into the lens for your experience. So if you have lifetimes of conflict, lifetime, a lifetime of built up emotion that's not getting released, it's going to perfectly project as conflict. So there's a perfection even in that imperfection. So when we go and change this, we change everything here too. What this really reminds me of is like a clear picture of the Eastern idea of uh, samsara or the continuous circle of death, rebirth, death, rebirth that is just um, infinite. And the way to sort of break free of samsara is to relieve yourself of attachments and to uh, embody compassion. It really de definitely reminds me of that. Do you get that feeling too? Yeah. And in fact, I traveled for many years uh, around Europe, mostly in the winter, presenting this unified field theory and teaching conflict revolution. And I don't know why the Europeans seem to be more open-minded or whatever to this information, but I would have a whole room full of people and I'd, I'd finish the unified field maps and the maps of human consciousness. And we'd take a break and people would just stand in front of it and stare at it and go, wait a minute, this is where samsara is. It's on the map. It's like, yeah, it's on the map. Everything is on the map. I once presented to a group of amateur physicists and chemists. I didn't quite know that's where I was going. So when I got there, I thought, oh, golly, I talk to dead people. I'm not a scientist. And would, but would you please listen to my theory? And at the end, they did the same thing. The physicist was like, you're what you've done is you've married the zero point gravity theory with the blah, blah, blah theory. And you put them into this, uh, 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 right? And I was like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a scientist, but you tell me. That sounds amazing. Um, but Barbara, as we begin to approach an hour here, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, is there anything else you want to go over? Anything else you want to share with the audience today? You know, I would just say, I would love if people would check out this information. And really, not everyone is going to be willing to do the dark work. Not everybody wants to get their mind off of us versus them. But for those who do, who are willing to experiment like I have for the past 30 years to put this information into play, I guarantee that it's life-changing that it's a, a completely new way to live in the world, but not of it. It's so fascinating. And, and the more that I get feedback from it, the more I realize that th for me, this is Einstein. This is his unified field theory. I, and I plan to, as we move forward, I'm reaching out to science, real scientists around the world so that I can go present it to them and get their feedback. Nassim Harriman, I'd love to hear what he has to say about it. I've reached out to Des uh, Matthias Desmet, who is a psychologist who worked on mass formation. He's interested in seeing it. 
but more just ordinary people changing our lives on local levels are, are going to have a big impact. So I, I hope everyone is curious enough to want to, and like I said, I have plenty of free stuff to go explore it. So where can people find all that stuff that you have, whether it be free or, or your books? Well, my main website is Synergy Alliance, synergyalliance.llc. LLC is now a domain name. So synergyalliance.llc, that has everything about the 30-year journey. I also have a YouTube channel, Barbara With, and barbarawith.com is my own website too. And you can find everything there. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Barbara. I really appreciate your insight, your openness, your willingness to, to share all this stuff, whether that be controversial or not. I just, I really appreciate it. And you've given me a lot to think about. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Josh.